Chapter Twenty Two of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Two. As Miriam struggled with Malbin, her hands pinioned to her sides by his brawny grip, hope died within her. She did not utter a sound, for she knew that there was none to come to her assistance and, too, the jungle training of her earlier life had taught her the futility of appeals for succor in the savage world of her upbringing. But as she fought to free herself, one hand came in contact with the butt of Malbin's revolver where it rested in the holster at his hip. Slowly he was dragging her toward the blankets, and slowly her fingers encircled the coveted prize and drew it from its resting place. Then, as Malbin stood at the edge of the disordered pile of blankets, Miriam suddenly ceased to draw away from him, and as quickly hurled her weight against him with the result that he was thrown backward, his feet stumbled against the bedding, and he was hurled to his back. Instinctively his hands flew out to save himself, and at the same instant Miriam leveled the revolver at his breast and pulled the trigger, but the hammer fell futilely upon an empty shell and Malbin was again upon his feet, clutching at her. For a moment she eluded him, and ran toward the entrance to the tent, but at the very doorway his heavy hand fell upon her shoulder and dragged her back. Wheeling upon him with the fury of a wounded lioness, Miriam grasped the long revolver by the barrel, swung it high above her head, and crashed it down full in Malbin's face. With an oath of pain and rage the man staggered backward, releasing his hold upon her, and then sank unconscious to the ground. Without a backward look, Miriam turned and fled into the open. Several of the blacks saw her and tried to intercept her flight, but the menace of the empty weapon kept them at a distance, and so she ran beyond the encircling boma and disappeared into the jungle to the south. Straight into the branches of a tree she went, true to the arboreal instincts of the little mangani she had been, and here she stripped off her riding skirt, her shoes and her stockings, for she knew that she had before her a journey and a flight which would not brook the burden of these garments. Her riding breeches and jacket would have to serve as protection from cold and thorns, nor would they hamper her over much, but a skirt and shoes were impossible among the trees. She had not gone far before she commenced to realize how slight were her chances for survival without means of defense or a weapon to bring down meat. Why had she not thought to strip the cartridge belt from Malbin's waist before she had left his tent? With cartridges for the revolver she might hope to bag small game, and to protect herself from all but the most ferocious of the enemies that would beset her way back to the beloved hearthstone of Buona and my dear. With the thought came determination to return and obtain the coveted ammunition. She realized that she was taking great chances of recapture but without means of defense and of obtaining meat she felt that she could never hope to reach safety, and so she turned her face back toward the camp from which she had but just escaped. She thought Malbin dead, so terrific a blow had she dealt him, and she hoped to find an opportunity after dark to enter the camp and search his tent for the cartridge belt, but scarcely had she found a hiding place in a great tree at the edge of the boma where she could watch without danger of being discovered, when she saw the Swede emerge from his tent, 
wiping blood from his face and hurling a volley of oaths and questions at his terrified followers. Shortly after, the entire camp set forth in search of her, and when Miriam was positive that all were gone, she descended from her hiding-place and ran quickly across the clearing to Malbin's tent. A hasty survey of the interior revealed no ammunition, but in one corner was a box in which were packed the Swede's personal belongings that he had sent along by his headman to this westerly camp. Miriam seized the receptacle as the possible container of extra ammunition. Quickly she loosed the cords that held the canvas covering about the box, and a moment later had raised the lid and was rummaging through the heterogeneous accumulation of odds and ends within. There were letters and papers and cuttings from old newspapers, and among other things the photograph of a little girl upon the back of which was pasted a cutting from a Paris daily a cutting that she could not read, yellowed and dimmed by age and handling. But something about the photograph of the little girl, which was also reproduced in the newspaper cutting, held her attention. Where had she seen that picture before? And then, quite suddenly, it came to her that this was a picture of herself as she had been years and years before. Where had it been taken? How had it come into the possession of this man? Why had it been reproduced in a newspaper? What was the story that the faded type told of it? Miriam was baffled by the puzzle that her search for ammunition had revealed. She stood gazing at the faded photograph for a time, and then bethought herself of the ammunition for which she had come. Turning again to the box, she rummaged to the bottom, and there in a corner she came upon a little box of cartridges. A single glance assured her that they were intended for the weapon she had thrust inside the band of her riding breeches, and slipping them into her pocket, she turned once more for an examination of the baffling likeness of herself that she held in her hand. As she stood thus in vain endeavor to fathom this inexplicable mystery, the sound of voices broke upon her ears. Instantly she was all alert. They were coming closer. A second later she recognized the lurid profanity of the Swede. Malbin, her persecutor, was returning. Miriam ran quickly to the opening of the tent and looked out. It was too late. She was fairly cornered. The white man and three of his black henchmen were coming straight across the clearing toward the tent. What was she to do? She slipped the photograph into her waist. Quickly she slipped a cartridge into each of the chambers of the revolver. Then she backed toward the end of the tent, keeping the entrance covered by her weapon. The man stopped outside, and Miriam could hear Malbin profanely issuing instructions. He was a long time about it, and while he talked in his bellowing, brutish voice, the girl sought some avenue of escape. Stooping, she raised the bottom of the canvas and looked beneath and beyond. There was no one inside upon that side, Throwing herself upon her stomach, she wormed beneath the tent wall just as Malbin, with a final word to his men, entered the tent. Miriam heard him cross the floor, and then she rose and, stooping low, ran to a native hut directly behind. Once inside this, she turned and glanced back. There was no one in sight. She had not been seen. And now from Malbin's tent she heard a great cursing. The Swede had discovered the rifling of his box. 
He was shouting to his men, and, as she heard them reply, Miriam darted from the hut and ran toward the edge of the boma, furthest from Malbin's tent. Overhanging the boma at this point was a tree that had been too large, in the eyes of the rest-loving blacks, to cut down. So they had terminated the boma just short of it. Miriam was thankful for whatever circumstance had resulted in the leaving of that particular tree where it was, since it gave her the much-needed avenue of escape which she might not otherwise have had. From her hiding-place she saw Malbin again enter the jungle, this time leaving a guard of three of his boys in the camp. He went toward the south, and after he had disappeared, Miriam skirted the outside of the enclosure and made her way to the river. Here lay the canoes that had been used in bringing the party from the opposite shore. They were unwieldy things for a lone girl to handle, but there was no other way, and she must cross the river. The landing-place was in full view of the guard at the camp. To risk the crossing under their eyes would have meant undoubted capture. Her only hope lay in waiting until darkness had fallen, unless some fortuitous circumstance should arise before. For an hour she lay watching the guard, one of whom seemed always in a position where he would immediately discover her should she attempt to launch one of the canoes. Presently Malbin appeared, coming out of the jungle hot and puffing. He ran immediately to the river where the canoes lay and counted them. It was evident that it had suddenly occurred to him that the girl must cross here if she wished to return to her protectors. The expression of relief on his face when he found that none of the canoes was gone was ample evidence of what was passing in his mind. He turned and spoke hurriedly to the head man who had followed him out of the jungle and with whom were several other blacks. Following Malbin's instructions, they launched all the canoes but one. Malbin called to the guards in the camp, and a moment later the entire party had entered the boats and were paddling upstream. Miriam watched them until a bend in the river directly above the camp hid them from her sight. They were gone. She was alone, and they had left a canoe in which lay a paddle. She could scarce believe the good fortune that had come to her. To delay now would be suicidal to her hopes. Quickly she ran from her hiding-place and dropped to the ground. A dozen yards lay between her and the canoe. Upstream beyond the bend, Malbin ordered his canoes in to shore. He landed with his headman and crossed the little point slowly in search of a spot where he might watch the canoe he had left at the landing-place. He was smiling in anticipation of the almost certain success of his stratagem. Sooner or later the girl would come back and attempt to cross the river in one of their canoes. It might be that the idea would not occur to her for some time. They might have to wait a day or two days, but that she would come if she lived or was not captured by the men he had scouting the jungle for her, Malbin was sure. That she would come so soon, however, he had not guessed, and so when he topped the point and came again within sight of the river he saw that which drew an angry oath from his lips. His quarry already was halfway across the river. Turning, he ran rapidly back to his boats, the headman at his heels. Throwing themselves in, Malbin urged his paddlers to their most powerful efforts. The canoes shot out into the stream and down with the current toward the fleeing quarry. She had almost completed the crossing when they came in sight of her. 
At the same instant she saw them, and redoubled her efforts to reach the opposite shore before they should overtake her. Two minutes' start of them was all Miriam cared for. Once in the trees she knew that she could outdistance and elude them. Her hopes were high. They could not overtake her now. She had had too good a start of them. Malbin, urging his men onward with a stream of hideous oaths and blows from his fists, realized that the girl was again slipping from his clutches. The leading canoe in the bow of which he stood was yet a hundred yards behind the fleeing Miriam when she ran the point of her craft beneath the overhanging trees on the shore of safety. Malbin screamed to her to halt. He seemed to have gone mad with rage at the realization that he could not overtake her, and then he threw his rifle to his shoulder, aimed carefully at the slim figure scrambling into the trees, and fired. Malbin was an excellent shot. His misses at so short a distance were practically non-existent, nor would he have missed this time, but for an accident occurring at the very instant that his finger tightened upon the trigger, an accident to which Miriam owed her life. The providential presence of a waterlogged tree trunk, one end of which was embedded in the mud of the river bottom, and the other end of which floated just beneath the surface where the prow of Malbin's canoe ran upon it as he fired. The slight deviation of the boat's direction was sufficient to throw the muzzle of the rifle out of aim. The bullet whizzed harmlessly by Miriam's head, and an instant later she had disappeared into the foliage of the tree. There was a smile on her lips as she dropped to the ground across a little clearing where once had stood a native village surrounded by its fields. The ruined hut still stood in crumbling decay. The rank vegetation of the jungle overgrew the cultivated ground. Small trees already had sprung up in what had been the village street, but desolation and loneliness hung like a pall above the scene. To Miriam, however, it presented but a place denuded of large trees, which she must cross quickly to regain the jungle upon the opposite side before Malbon should have landed. The deserted huts were, to her, all the better, because they were deserted. She did not see the keen eyes watching her from a dozen points, from tumbling doorways, from behind tottering granaries. In utter unconsciousness of impending danger, she started up the village street, because it offered the clearest pathway to the jungle. A mile away toward the east, fighting his way through the jungle, along the trail taken by Malbin when he had brought Miriam to his camp, a man in torn khaki, filthy, haggard, unkempt, came to a sudden stop as the report of Malbin's rifle resounded faintly through the tangled forest. The black man just ahead of him stopped too. "'We are almost there, Buana,' he said. There was awe and respect in his tone and manner. The white man nodded and motioned his ebon guide forward once more. It was the Honorable Morrison Baines, the fastidious, the exquisite. His face and hands were scratched and smeared with dried blood from the wounds he had come by in thorn and thicket. His clothes were tatters, but through the blood and the dirt and the rags a new Baines shone forth a handsomer Baines than the dandy and the fop of yore. In the heart and soul of every son of woman lies the germ of manhood and honor. Remorse for a scurvy act and an honorable desire to right the wrong he had done the woman he now knew he really loved had excited these germs to rapid growth in Morrison Baines, and the metamorphosis had taken place. 
Onward the two stumbled toward the point from which the single rifle shot had come. The black was unarmed. Baines, fearing his loyalty, had not dared trust him even to carry the rifle which the white man would have been glad to be relieved of many times upon the long march. But now that they were approaching their goal, and knowing as he did that hatred of Malbin burned hot in the black man's brain, Baines handed him the rifle, for he guessed that there would be fighting. He intended that there should be, for he had come to avenge. Himself an excellent revolver shot would depend upon the smaller weapon at his side. As the two forged ahead toward their goal, they were startled by a volley of shots ahead of them. Then came a few scattering reports, some savage yells, and silence. Baines was frantic in his endeavors to advance more rapidly, but there the jungle seemed a thousand times more tangled than before. A dozen times he tripped and fell. Twice the black followed a blind trail, and they were forced to retrace their steps. But at last they came out into a little clearing near the Big Affy, a clearing that once held a thriving village, but lay somber and desolate in decay and ruin. In the jungle vegetation that overgrew what had once been the main village street lay the body of a black man, pierced through the heart with a bullet, and still warm. Baines and his companion looked about in all directions, but no sign of living being could they discover. They stood in silence, listening intently. What was that? Voices and the dip of paddles out upon the river? Baines ran across the dead village toward the fringe of jungle upon the river's brim. The black was at his side. Together they forced their way through the screening foliage until they could obtain a view of the river, and there, almost to the other shore, they saw Malbin's canoes making rapidly for camp. The black recognized his companions immediately. "'How can we cross?' asked Baines. The black shook his head. There was no canoe, and the crocodiles made it equivalent to suicide to enter the water in an attempt to swim across. Just then the fellow chanced to glance downward. Beneath him, wedged among the branches of a tree, lay the canoe in which Miriam had escaped. The negro grasped Baines' arm and pointed toward his find. The Honorable Morrison could scarce repress a shout of exultation. Quickly the two slid down the drooping branches into the boat. The black seized the paddle, and Baines shoved them out from beneath the tree. A second later the canoe shot out upon the bosom of the river and headed toward the opposite shore and the camp of the Swede. Baines squatted in the bow, straining his eyes after the men pulling the other canoes upon the bank across from him. He saw Malbin step from the bow of the foremost of the little craft. He saw him turn and glance back across the river. He could see his start of surprise as his eyes fell upon the pursuing canoe and called the attention of his followers to it. Then he stood waiting, for there was but one canoe and two men, little danger to him and his followers in that. Malbin was puzzled. Who was this white man? He did not recognize him, though Bain's canoe was now in midstream and the features of both its occupants plainly discernible to those on shore. One of Malbin's blacks it was who first recognized his fellow black in the person of Bain's companion. Then Malbin guessed who the white man must be, though he could scarce believe his own reasoning. It seemed beyond the pale of wildest conjecture to suppose that the Honorable Morrison Baines had followed him through the jungle, 
with but a single companion. And yet it was true. Beneath the dirt and dishevelment he recognized him at last, and in the necessity of admitting that it was he, Malbin was forced to recognize the incentive that had driven Baines, the weakling and coward, through the savage jungle upon his trail. The man had come to demand an accounting and to avenge. It seemed incredible, and yet there could be no other explanation. Malbin shrugged. Well, others had sought Malbin for similar reasons in the course of a long and checkered career. He fingered his rifle and waited. Now the canoe was within easy speaking distance of the shore. "'What do you want?' yelled Malbin, raising his weapon threateningly. The Honorable Morrison Baines leaped to his feet. "'You! Damn you!' he shouted, whipping out his revolver and firing almost simultaneously with the Swede. As the two reports rang out, Malbin dropped his rifle, clutched frantically at his breast, staggered, fell first to his knees, and then lunged upon his face. Baines stiffened, his head flew back spasmodically. For an instant he stood thus, and then crumpled very gently into the bottom of the boat. The black paddler was at a loss as to what to do. If Malbin really were dead, he could continue on to join his fellows without fear. But should the Swede only be wounded, he would be safer upon the far shore. Therefore he hesitated, holding the canoe in midstream. He had come to have considerable respect for his new master, and was not unmoved by his death. As he sat gazing at the crumpled body in the bow of the boat, he saw it move. Very feebly the man essayed to turn over. He still lived. The black moved forward and lifted him to a sitting position. He was standing in front of him, his paddle in one hand, asking Baines where he was hit, when there was another shot from shore and the negro pitched headlong overboard, his paddle still clutched in his dead fingers, shot through the forehead. Baines turned weakly in the direction of the shore to see Malbin drawn up upon his elbows, leveling his rifle at him. The Englishman slid to the bottom of the canoe as a bullet whizzed above him. Malbin, sore hit, took longer in aiming, nor was his aim as sure as formerly. With difficulty Baines turned himself over on his belly, and grasping his revolver in his right hand, drew himself up until he could look over the edge of the canoe. Malbin saw him instantly and fired, but Baines did not flinch or duck. With painstaking care he aimed at the target upon the shore from which he now was drifting with the current. His finger closed upon the trigger. There was a flash and a report, and Malbin's giant frame jerked to the impact of another bullet. But he was not yet dead. Again he aimed and fired, the bullet splintering the gunwale of the canoe close by Bain's face. Baines fired again as his canoe drifted further downstream, and Malbin answered from the shore where he lay in a pool of his own blood. And thus, doggedly, the two wounded men continued to carry on their weird duel until the winding African river had carried the Honorable Morrison Baines out of sight around a wooded point. End of chapter 22